Welcome to Cabot Conversations, produced by the Cabot Institute for the Environment at the University of Bristol. We are a diverse community of 600 experts united by a common cause, protecting our environment and identifying ways of living better with our changing planet. This podcast series brings together our experts and collaborators to discuss complex environmental challenges and solutions to climate change. In this episode, Dr. Tommaso Yucca and Professor Jane Memmott discuss the true value of ecosystem services. You can find out more about the Cabot Institute for the Environment at bristol.ac.uk forward slash Cabot. Let's start with some introductions. So I'm um, Jane Mehmet. I'm a professor of ecology at Bristol University. I'm primarily uh, an entomologist working on insects. Uh, I work a lot on plants and insects and ask about the impact of environmental change on ecological communities. My name is Tommaso Jucker. I'm also based at the University of Bristol in the School of Biological Sciences where I'm a research fellow and a lecturer. Uh, Most of my work revolves around forests and forest ecology, thinking about how forests are responding to rapid environmental change and what this means for for people and for nature. Our brief uh, for the next kind of um, hour or so is to talk about ecosystem services, which is a subject very close to both our hearts. Um, Although I guess we, we come at it from very different angles, actually. And and I was I was I kind of think it's perhaps as a way to start this conversation. I was wondering what your your favourite ever kind of ecosystem service paper is that kind of captures what it's all about and the importance and excitement of the, the world. That's a, an almost impossible question. So I'm going to pick a paper that I like. I'm not sure. I'm not sure it's necessarily my favourite ever paper. Um, but there was a, a, a paper published by uh, Cook Patton uh, and and a whole bunch of other co-authors, which came out in Nature about a year ago. Um, and it's what it does, which I think is really neat. Uh, is it explores the rate at which forests that have been in some way impacted by humans, primarily by either logging or habitat fragmentation or habitat loss, how quickly these forests can recover back from their from their disturbed state to a sort of uh, sort of more semi-natural uh, uh, to state, and and what the implications of that are for how much carbon they could sequester from the atmosphere. So it's trying to put some numbers on how quickly forests globally could. Uh, have a sort of measurable impact on the CO2 that as a sort of society we emit to the atmosphere. Um, and so where previous work that has sort of stopped uh, slightly before uh, trying to quantify just where forests are and where they're not uh, and where they could be, this is actually starting to get a sense of how quickly could we reverse some of the trends that we're seeing globally uh, if we were to do something about protecting forests in different regions of the world. Um, so yeah, that's that's my last favorite favorite paper from last year at least. How about yourself? Uh, one of my all-time favourites is actually a reason, it's quite an old paper now, actually, it's probably about 10 years old, something like that, but actually it's a pollination paper. And what it does, it's working on blueberry plantations um, somewhere in North America. So as far as the eye can see are these huge blueberry plantations. And they're looking at the importance of wild pollinators in there. So a lot of people think, you know, these honeybees do pollination and that's about as far as they, you know, so that's, that's it. But actually there's this army of wild pollinators that do an awful lot of this ecosystem service of pollination around the world. Every every blueberry you have ever eaten, along with every strawberry and apple and an awful lot of other things are all produced by by pollinators. And what they did in this paper was they they planted um, wildflower strips between the blueberries. They're in these serried ranks of blueberries. They put wildflowers in between. And then they did three things. So they did what everyone normally does, which is to look at, if you put flower strips down, do you get more pollinators coming in? 
They then looked at whether that led to a greater increase of blueberries. So does it translate into more blueberry production? And then the kind of cherry on the cake bit was to actually ask, well, does it make an economic difference to the blueberry farmer? And, and what they showed was that actually, if you put these strips in, they pretty much, they pay for themselves after a couple of years. So, you know, why wouldn't you put strips of flowers down between your blueberries? And it, and it just shows that, you know, by helping the pollinators, the pollinators help the farmer effectively. And you've got this wonderful kind of win-win situation, which to me is what, you know, if you get ecosystem services right and manage, you know, look after them and manage them, then it works for both halves really, really well. And, uh, and it's one of the folk that, you know, most pollination people, papers stop short at that kind of proving it makes a, an economic difference at the end of it. By, but by putting that monetary stuff in, it really turns it into something rather special. Yeah, so why, why do you think that, uh, I guess two points there. So why do you think that, uh, where do we not get that message across to people? Where do we fail in getting that message across to people? Uh, the farmers, for instance, that that's actually a win-win scenario for them. Um, why, why is it so hard? Yeah, I don't know. Um, I think by putting it into money, so ecosystem services have taken an awful lot of kind of um, stick over the years for trying to monetize it, you know, putting values on things that are sometimes intrinsically really, really difficult to put values on. You know, how do you value a view or something like that? But I think actually what it does do is it puts it on the table along with lots of other decision-making things. So you know, farmers along with lots of other people want to do the right thing, but at the same time, they have to earn a living. And, and I think by actually kind of in that particular case, putting a value on it is actually really a very helpful thing thing to do. Um, and it just yeah. makes it, 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 in that particular case, it makes it a bit of a no brainer to, to actually go and go and do that. So, um, so what was it you particularly liked with your paper is the fact that you could actually see a road, a route map out of you know because sometimes the news can be a bit depressing yeah. actually you know it's all the world's going down the tube basically but this is a this is a route map out of, of um yeah and i think it's uh, and i think it touches again on a few of the points that you were making one of them is the is the putting a, a dollar value on it and if we're starting to think about carbon in, in a similar way as to what we've thought about pollination uh so historically it's easier to put a dollar value on pollination because we, we rely on it as food but we're now starting to see that we've dug a hole so deep for in terms of our of the climate emergency that we're starting to have to think about what what value we place on carbon and its emissions um so it, it essentially it gives you a way of of a roadmap or a way of prioritizing and saying well if you are going to in sort of uh, thinking about a nature-based solution like reforestation, where are you better, best off doing it? Uh, and uh, where, where perhaps should you not be doing it as well, which is an equally important piece of the, of, of the puzzle and some, a message that often gets confused and muddled and uh, doesn't quite come across right, um, both from in the scientific community and then when it sort of trickles up to, to, to policy. Um, so yeah, I, th I think it, I think we we're sort of hitting on a similar topic there. The fact that you it's about being concrete and about making it in such a way that people can really get it. Why what the what the win-win scenarios are? Yeah, yeah. Um, that, that probably brings on to the idea. It's one of the reasons it's difficult. It's not just about ecologists like you and I. So you know we we we're, you know we we work as ecologists in in a biology department. But to do a lot of ecosystem service stuff, you actually need teams which actually have other types of scientists on board. So if you want to put money value on things, I mean, the, the blueberry paper is actually very, it's not quite back of an envelope type calculations, but the, you know, it's, it's sort of stuff that a, a biologist could probably just about manage, but to do it properly, you know, working with environmental economic, um, economists um, and things like that. Mm. And actually those interdisciplinary teams, which presumably in your field as well, you need, you can't, you know, if you can do trees, you need to do more than 
he has to count and measure trees to actually do the carbon side of things. Yeah, and I mean, especially if you start thinking about the kind of scale at which people are talking about having seen some of these sort of ecosystem interventions or, or, or restorations, which are some of the scales are huge. And if you don't, if you don't start bringing in people who think about land use uh, and people who think about maybe ways of measuring forests at scale using remote sensing or other kind of technologies and people who actually understand the ecology of these trees. So why one species might grow really well somewhere, but not so well somewhere else. Uh, and if you don't, if you don't really think about that carefully, then it then it can be you're not really going to get very far. Um, I mean, I'm guessing you have you have examples of projects that are that are exactly like that, right? Where where you've without that inter interdisciplinary uh, connections, then you wouldn't really be able to make any headway. Uh, no, no, and actually, I think some of the the biggest, most exciting projects that I've been involved with in um, the, the last few years have been these interdisciplinary projects where you're working with people um, that do really different things to you. And if 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 you think about it, those really those those really big problems that society faces. Um, that you and I kind of, you know, work on the ecological angle too. They, they require people with skill sets that are really different to the ones that we've got to solve them. But by working together as a team with the ecologist, with the economist, with the social scientist, sometimes with the engineers and things like that, then together you can actually, um, you know, get some way towards really, really solving them. And um, the, the, the project I'm, I'm super excited about at the moment that we're working on actually involves working as an ecologist with climate change people and human nutritionists actually. So working with people in um, at UCL and Harvard and uh, the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine that work on human nutrition. And, and we're really interested in the effect of climate change on pollinators, how that affects crop production, and then how that kind of has the knock-on effects on the human diet, particularly with regard to micronutrients like folic acid and, and vitamin A. And, and, you know, so I'm talking to nutritionists and reading papers about vitamin A deficiency and things like that, which, you know, as an ecologist is, but it's, it's just so, it's really exciting learning about these different things. And there was a chance that between us, you know, a good chance we can actually do something that none of us could do um, individually. And I, th I think that's somewhere where yeah. Cabot is really important in, in, in Bristol, actually, at bringing together those different, different disciplines. Because I think you've done some work with Cabot with your, um, the, the replanting thing, aren't you? You're, that's, that's. Yeah, yeah. So I've, I've, I, I couldn't agree more. So I, uh, I couldn't agree more on the fact that it's also among the most exciting kind of work that you can do when you're sort of forced out of your a little bit out of your comfort zone uh, and then having to learn something new. It's sort of it's part of why we, we enjoy uh, working in the, these kind of fields. Um, yeah, we've, we've had really good fortune of, of uh, Cabot sort of instigating a really nice collaboration between a local NGO uh, charity based based here in Bristol that's looking to buy up land uh, and essentially reforest it and hopefully rewild it uh, in in the future. Um, and we we've been involved with them and trying to set up uh, some small scale experiments with other colleagues in Bristol as well. And just thinking about if there if there are any easy ways that we could boost the, the initial recovery of these of these trees that are being planted in these agricultural soils that are impoverished and a lot of the sort of biodiversity that is sort of that we don't think of all the things that live in the soil all the microorganisms all the fungi all the bacteria the nematodes all these things that we we're a bit squeamish about and we don't want to think about uh, but actually are, are fundamental to to plants as well uh, it's a, it's a, it's very much um an interaction between them. And so we're thinking about whether there's ways in which we can restore those below ground communities 
by, by inoculating soils uh, from ancient woodlands into these into these uh, grasslands. It's a it's a colleague of mine once put it. It's a bit akin to when when people think about um, uh, the, the your microbiome in your stomach and trying to reset it if you've gone through a course of antibiotics or something like that. Uh, it's it's the same kind of uh, kind of thing. Um, but yes, definitely organizations uh, like Habit that do this do this brilliantly in in, in enabling these collaborations. Um, yeah, I think yeah, that kind of matchmaking service they can do is actually really, um, really, really super useful. Um, I've heard that that saw mm. community referred to as the poor man's rainforest. Actually, it is ridiculously diverse mm. what's down there. So um, yes, yeah, and it's exciting because um, it's it's also it's still a, a bit of a, a black box to 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 even even to ecologists. We don't really know that much about it, and we don't know exactly what what all those soil organisms are necessarily doing so trying to piece that together is also ecologically quite stimulating and interesting uh, so it's, it's nice to be able to do something that's got a that I can see a real practical application for but also that it, that I that I mean they enjoy doing the science of. I had, a, I had a question for you actually Jane which is going slightly off script but is related to a point that you were you were making before um, so one impression that I've got in, in the last sort of like uh, being an ecologist for the last 10 years or so is that this push towards interdisciplinarity and thinking about the real applied outcomes of your work is something that's become more and more prominent. It's much harder to justify yourself today as an ecologist if your work doesn't really have an applied uh, angle to it. Do you, do you think that's true or is it something is just, just what we see that I see around us and it's not it's actually always been like that? Yeah, I think it's seen as a real plus if you can do applied stuff too, actually. Um, that said, I've always personally been most comfortable. So I tend to, I view myself as doing pure stuff on applied systems, which is kind of, because um, mm. I think if you're there on the, the pure science is about the absolute, you know, using the, you know, the latest developments and pushing that kind of, and I don't think that it's an artificial divide between the two, to be honest. So I like taking those kind yeah. of, you know, Possibly techniques that aren't widely applied in and the applied side of things and using them on applied questions. And to me, it's you end up with twice the audience because you've got the pure people interested in you know, how the science is developing. And at the same time, you're working on a system where there's a lot more interest in what happens than if it was, you know, some you know, something that didn't have an applied interest. So I, I think it's definitely, I think the divide is blurring, which is really good. Um, mm -hmm. And yeah, and I think it's uh, some of it's kind of politics, you know, the uh, yeah, the, the ref in universities, the impact statements and things like that, which I think have actually done a, they, they've actually been genuinely useful from that point of view in kind of, um, you know, the, the applied side is actually, I think it used to be kind of just nature and science papers that kind of drove that side of things. And now actually it's much more that it's the impact of that science. And so I'm, mm. I, I, I like the direction things are going in there, actually. I, I kind of, you know, with a bit of the, the, the vision, you shouldn't be either or. With a bit of luck, everyone is a bit of both, actually. Um, yeah. And that's, yeah, and as, as you're saying, I mean, just that's your, your own little kind of sphere of discipline, but then actually matching that up and, you know, where the, possibly where the really the biggest gains are to be made is when you start overlapping two different fields and, you know, you can apply techniques from one to another and, and see what's happening. You know, there's a bit of interest in food webs and using kind of all sorts of, you know, machine learning and some of the big kind of computational um, things that are coming through quite thick and fast. And, you know, I'm really an, an old fashioned field biologist in some ways. I, I go out and collect data and, and so on. But I still think some of those things coming in are really, really interesting. And, um, you know, they can help us do our jobs better. And um, it's, it's, it's interesting, actually. The, I, 
I mean, doing interdisciplinary work, I've heard described as being suitable for the, the very young who are kind of, you know, high risk and possibly foolhardy, you know, they tend to take a risk. And the elderly, you know, the older people that actually have made a, you know, they've, got, they've made their reputation and can afford to do high risk things. And there's a big bunch of people in the middle that don't do it because it's just not the right sort of stage. And um, I'm just wondering, you know, what we can do to make people more comfortable with doing interdisciplinary work. I mean, there are, there are some funding sources, which certainly, you know, big carrots are always useful. Um, yeah. But, you know, about training youngsters. I mean, I would love to see um, a system whereby um, students get a chance. You know, a, a biology student gets a chance to work with an engineer, a social scientist and a and perhaps a philosopher, you know, just someone, uh, and, and actually put them into teams and see what they come up with. Um, I mean, certainly I, I met a really good philosopher through Cabot, actually, and um, we actually, we kept in touch for quite a few years and went to each other's away days and things. And, you know, the philosophy of, uh, the ethics of the environment are actually really interesting. And um, yeah. I, th I think they, coming, meeting people with different ways of thinking about problems, you know, is really quite mind expanding, actually, and, and very useful, and very practical. I couldn't agree more. Uh, and uh, yeah, I mean, I think, yeah, I think universities and departments should be should be really encouraging people from a from a from a young age, sort of when they're sort of PhDs and even master students to, to sort of think of ways and give them opportunities to, uh, to sort of work together, even even if those initially there's some of those interdisciplinary interactions are closer to home. So you might be working with someone who is a uh, molecular biologist and you're an ecologist or, yeah. or something like that so I mean, but but yeah I, I think it's I think it's very very important and I think it's one thing that I found uh, uh, when I started dabbling in these kind of things was was that actually it's often easier to form these collaborative ties than, than you think it's going to be I think a barrier often seems to be that people are scared that it won't work or if they reach out the answer is going to be no and my experience has almost never been the case um and so it's uh, that taking that first step is is often the the, the biggest hurdle but um it's, yeah. it's very rewarding yeah it is actually people rarely say no that that email you send out on a friday afternoon to a complete stranger can actually be i just love that about academia mm. the way you do contact complete strangers on the other side of the world with this crazy idea and they they're, they're enthusiastic yeah. in return it is one of the best bits about being a, a a kind of an academic that network that that community of um um, people, you know, willing to take a, you know, a, a risk on a new idea is uh, is just brilliant. But um, yeah, perhaps yeah, perhaps masters and PhD levels are the easiest ones because one of the problems I've tried doing at the undergraduate level, but you kind of <laughs> huge problems with timetables and things like that. Trying to find mm -hmm. times when you know lots of people for doing different courses are free at the same time is is phenomenally difficult actually. But um, yeah. well, certainly at the graduate level, it should be easier. Yeah, and I, I mean, I think it, it would be um, you, you could imagine systems that you put in place that would that would really that would really push that and facilitate that. Uh, yeah, when when sort of people from different backgrounds are forced together, uh, that often the, the outcome can be quite. quite yeah, just add add coffee and chocolate cake or something, or uh, you know, a bottle of beer, and, and let people t you know talk things over, and they'll come up with some really uh, really good ideas. So, um, I mean, something we're, we're both really keen on at the moment is um, the whole business of rewilding and kind of just thinking about the mm. ecosystem service side of, of that, because that, you know, even if we just look in, you know, uh, the world over, it's kind of quite a happening field, but even just here in the, um, the UK, um, in terms of kind of things like, I don't know, water quality, water quantity, kind of yeah, ecosystem services, water provision, um, conservation of biodiversity, um, and the sort of stuff you do, the, the whole kind of carbon side of things, and also the ability to kind of 
you know, I always love the way that you can do things from your office, you know, somewhere in Borneo, <laughs> basically, you know, you don't have to worry about the weather and all the stuff that I have to kind of worry about when going out to do field work. But um, that, that side of things is really super interesting. We gloss over a lot of the uh, of the technical difficulties, but yes, uh, working so working with remote sensing data is, is has certainly been a, a helpful thing. Uh, it's a, it gives you it gives you a way out of your office uh, essentially. So that that's absolutely true. Um, but yeah, none of, none of the work that we do would be in any way possible without the links that we have with uh, people on the ground and uh, be they NGOs or other universities or local partner, local government partners. Um, we're, we're entirely reliant on those connections. And it's, uh, I think it's, yeah, we're hopefully we're still far away from a moment where you could just do everything from your office because that would be a bit sad. Um, and uh, yeah, so I'm, I'm, yeah, hopefully we won't get there too quickly. Um, but yeah, I think that the, I think that rewilding as a concept, uh, even though it, it, it remains slightly poorly defined, or at least people have different definitions of exactly what it is, is a really, really interesting way to think about how we, uh, we think about nature and uh, nature and how it, it relates to people and land use and ecosystem services and all of that. But I think it's it's going to be one of the themes of the next few decades. Um, yeah, no, and it's yeah. a tremendous it's a tremendous exciting period right now actually because there are several kind of there's kind of a policy window out there as well with um, you know kind of follow up from <clears throat> kind of the, well the whole Brexit thing. The, the agriculture bills and environmental bills, there's things coming through that means that, you know, there's quite a lot of moving parts at the moment and quite exactly where they all settle out. It's, uh, I did, you know, there is a tremendous opportunity for change in a way that actually really um, benefits both the environment and our kind of use of those more effectively freebies that the environment provides if we look after it properly. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's really, yeah, that, that is, that, that's really exciting. Yeah, I think it's. I see. I see it a lot in in my field at the moment, where there's there's been a big push uh, from from government and and elsewhere. This specifically in the UK about sort of thinking about reforesting and the fact that we should be planting a whole bunch of trees. And there's big big plans to sort of uh, increase forest cover in the UK by several percentage points over the next few decades, which are which would be one of the sort of biggest transformations of the landscape there you would have seen for for a while um and yeah which which is exciting as an opportunity and also and sometimes a bit scary because you you as a scientist i sometimes get a bit worried that we're going to lose a bit of the nuance which is important in terms of thinking of exactly how we do these kind of interventions and where we do them and what species we might be planting and in which type of soil and which type of habitat. Uh, and there's a worry that some of that nuance might be lost as it sort of bubbles up to from, from, from research all the way up to sort of actual big scale policy. Because um, yeah. there's, there are opportunities to, to get things badly wrong as well as really, really right. So it's, yeah. yeah. Now, and I guess wood, um, woodland is like the jewel in the ecological crown as well. I mean, ancient broadleaf woodland. I start every day walking my dog around an ancient woodland. And it's, yeah, it's the best start in the day yeah. out there, actually. Yeah, whatever yeah. the weather. And, and you see all weathers, actually, over here. You do it in full waterproofs and in a T-shirt sort of thing. But um, yeah, trying to... Yeah, woodland isn't all equal, basically. If you walk through that compared to walking through a, you know, a, you know, a pine plantation or something, and and then you've, got, I've done quite a bit of work on um, pause, so plantations on ancient woodland sites. So it was an ancient woodland, and then it got turned into a plantation, and then what's the best way to restore it back to something like its former glory yep. without waiting 400 years odd, which is the kind of current definition of what makes a woodland ancient. 
um, you know, can we fast track things? And um, and it's slightly alarming with woodlands as an ecologist, actually, because if you look at all of you know, different groups, so the woodland birds, woodland plants, woodland butterflies, we're all slowly declining. You know, we're all used to seeing those declines of um, birds on farmland, say, but there's this kind of, even on big big woodland nature reserves, stuff is starting, it's, it's going down, and we don't entirely understand why, and it's probably some mixture of climate change and this and that, and extinction debts and 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 all sorts of things. Um, so getting that woodland side of things back is really, really important. And it is a magical habitat. I think, yeah, I think it's it's interesting. I think in, in our in in our collective imagination, we probably have this view of of somewhere like Great Britain being completely covered in woodland a few millennia ago, uh, which it probably, I mean, almost certainly we we know it wasn't actually the case. No, it was much more of a matrix of different types of habitats kept open by large herbivores and uh, top predators that uh, hunted on those uh, herbivores and all these uh, cascading ecological effects, which sort of goes back to the whole idea of rewilding as a concept of sort of like trying to restore some of these processes and keep these habitats as a mosaic uh, where yeah. you've got within an area you've got all of the different types of habitats and you're you're, you're sort of uh, getting the most for, for biodiversity and, and also probably in terms of ecosystem services that those those communities are providing. Yeah, no, we certainly done some work where we're looking at um, the value of actually having different habitats, the adjacencies of different habitats, you know, how close, yeah, having them next door to each other. And if you think of something like a pollinator community, you know, they start off in the woodland with all the bluebells and campions and the you know, huge floral resources in woodlands in the spring. And then, mm. you know, next to nothing the rest of the year or very little. Whereas if it's next to a heathland or, a, you know, a meadow, you get this at the landscape level, you get that continuity of resources. So that patchiness is, is really probably very important, actually. We've been talking a bit about uh, sort of uh, nature conservation in this, in the whatever it is, the great outdoors, the countryside. But actually, there's a lot of nature conservation that uh, you could do right on your doorstep in a, in a city, in in, in a town. Uh, I know you've done some really exciting work on pollination in cities uh, and, and and that kind of thing. Yeah, no, cities can be. What's really brilliant about cities is where most of the population live, and so any diversity you can get into cities is a good for diversity, but also it brings people and nature close together because we, you know. We can't all live in the countryside and see it every day, but actually everybody should have, it should be an absolute right rather than the luxury to be able to go through a bit of green space every day, whether it's on the walk to the station or to the shopping mall or, you know, to collect the kids from school or whatever. And I think, and there's so much evidence now that that green space is actually really good for physical and mental health, that actually, I'm sure if you do the, the economics, it, it pays for itself really quite quickly. There's really good data coming out from Germany recently showing that been within hundred meters of a tree, um, you know, there's a there's a reduced use of antidepressants, and that's e an even stronger effect in in the poorer parts of town. And and you know, the mm. physical health, walking places. I you know, it's there's there's so much evidence going on that um, in terms of those services. You know, trees are more than I mean, they're great for wood and carbon and all sorts of things. But just there's something really nice about sitting on a bench under a tree that goes way above and beyond the the physical tangible things that they 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 provide. Yeah, I couldn't agree more. And uh, thinking also in the in human health and all that kind of thing, I mean, there's there's some really nice research in the last few years showing the the sort of the climate amelioration or the, the sort of climate climate buffering effect that that sort of urban forest can have, um, and uh, sort of lowering the temperature during extreme events and when you get a big heat wave coming through in the summer and that, that can affect people's health negatively really quite badly. Uh, the, the it's it's quite amazing how much of an impact. Uh, 
uh, having a few trees around you can can have yeah um, and yeah we take that for granted yeah i know those kind of nature-based solutions um i think also with i saw data once on how much rainfall a tree a big leafy tree in the middle of summer if there's a summer storm just having all the leaves mm. wet captures liters and liters of water and, and slows it down going into the um, flood water thing so what yeah. was really nice is certainly for pollinators the things that pollinators like people tend to like as well so you know big flowery meadows and you know there's some real overlap of kind of interest between pollinators and people and you know if you can give your local park a makeover and, and get it better for both. So parks in the UK only produce about 4% of the nectar that's in towns and cities, actually. It's a really low amount, actually. When you actually quantify it, as, as we do, we go around measuring the amount of nectar in flowers. Um, you know, most of it's actually in gardens in cities, but you know, there's a tremendous opportunity in parks to make them much better for people and for pollinators. And I think over the last you know, few decades, there's not been you know, particularly great investment in parks, but I think in terms of saving money down the road, basically just being pragmatic and economic about it, you invest in those green spaces i'm sure you know if budgets are all joined up and you save money on the kind of health side of things it'll be really obvious i can i agree that it's an opportunity you know for people to be able to be outside in their local area and to be able to enjoy that and, uh, and sort of take the most of it it's probably going to be important for um certainly in the immediate term and hopefully we can transition that as a as a more permanent concept as a more sort of like ingrained that into into people's sort of daily routines yeah. Uh, and it, uh, but that would be fantastic. Yeah, there can be kind of country level decisions. I think it's Singapore, actually, I was reading about where, you know, basically there's a huge number of really large urban trees and they were planted in the 60s. You know, there was a big decisions made in the 60s or 50s, I think 60s and 70s. And they and, you know, it's now incredibly richly, you know, there's lots and lots of trees there, kind of big trees now. Um, and, you know, those sorts of decisions can be, you know, can be made and, um, I, you know, I did a big survey in Bristol once of the size of the trees, and there are some big, truly beautiful trees around, but there are, there's not many of them. And actually, we do need to be thinking of, you know, just, you know, there's that nice saying about it being a wise person that plants a tree that's going to look great in 100 years' time sort of thing, you know, and it is about that thinking ahead. Um, but, uh, yeah. Where are the most beautiful, beautiful old trees in Bristol? Uh, my, well, three of my favourites down on um, Anchor Road, there's, I think it's three huge plane trees in the middle of a roundabout. And I've, I've no idea what they're doing there. They, they obviously predate the roundabout, but they are particularly fine, beautiful trees. And that's a, a tree very suited for it. It's not a native tree, um, but, you know, it's brought in because it can cope with pollution and all sorts of things. And it's, they're just particularly graceful trees. And I see them every day as I walk down to, well, when I used to walk down to get the bus, which I will do again one day. Um, and there's some particularly fine, um, huge old oaks up in... Um, Oh, and actually in some of the halls of residence grounds, there's some absolutely gorgeous ones there. Um, just stunning things. They're like little ecosystems in their, their own right. Um, you know, they'll be, uh, in terms of birds and insects and biomass of biodiversity, they are, they are just, you know, they're, they're powerhouses, those sorts of trees. Yeah, you make a really good point there about the, uh, about the, the fact that it's, it's not just the, the, the live tree, right? It's also that the dead, the dead tree, even when once it's once it's died, it still has a lot of uh, used to be to lot lot to give. Yeah. Uh, and I sort of historically there were probably a bit of tendency to get rid of all that dead wood as as quickly as you possibly could and burn it or do something with it. And uh, 
I think we're seeing a shift there where we're starting to understand that leaving some of that dead wood, even some of that dead wood standing, ideally, uh, has uh, can, can be a home for many different species. Yeah, I mean, the aesthetics of the environment are kind of an ecosystem service as well, how beautiful it looks. And to me, actually, the sight of trees in winter, you know, the, those tree skeletons against the skyline are absolutely stunning. Um, you know, it's mm. almost like an art form in itself. And um, yeah, that, you know, I, I, and actually, I think in terms of, you know, going to economics, kind of house prices and things, if you've got a view of the sea or over a woodland or something like that, you know, people are willing to pay more for something like that because it does make a difference to your, you know, to look out of the window onto something like that is uh, is, is rather special. So, um, but I think yeah. one of the nice things about, you know, no matter, if you live in a city, that little patch, you know, that everyone's got, if you've got a garden, you've got your own little tiny nature reserve, basically. And it is one of those things where, you know, you can then, you're up close and personal with your own, you know, there's bumblebees and moths and all sorts of things. And, uh, and actually getting kids involved in that side of things, I think is super important, you know, looking forward. So school grounds do some really exciting things. And actually on the Urban Pollinators Project, we planted meadows in school grounds. And uh, that, that's just a wonderful thing to do because they often do have that little, you know, they have enough space, some, quite a lot of them actually, to just put in a, our meadows were 300 meters um, square, 300 square meters, so 30 meters by 10. And you can put in a meadow and, and, you know, kids can do all sorts of, um, you know, curriculum based activities or just enjoying watching them. Everyone likes sitting next to a flowery patch. What, what's unique about Bristol? What's unique about Bristol and how do we make a difference? So um, what do you think is Bristol is it? We both washed up in Bristol. I'm not from Bristol. You're, you're not from Bristol. And actually, in terms of um, as a place to live, it, it is actually pretty special. I, I actually intended to try and get a job in a northern university because I'd spent a lot of time in the north at that point and rather liked living in that kind of Leeds, Sheffield sort of area. Um, but Bristol is a pretty special place, actually, I think. It's got that, um, there's a, a lot of ecological stuff going on, everything from the filmmaking expertise, which, you know, it's the BBC and all those independent filmmakers. Um, you've got a hotspot of ecological consultancies. You've got the Environment Agency and DEFRA, and you've got this kind of, massive and the festival of nature in a you know normally and and there's there's like some sort of emergent property that comes out of it almost it does make it a pretty special place to be uh, to be an ecologist yeah it's, it's been an absolutely brilliant place to to, to come and work uh there, there definitely seems to be uh this this idea this sort of momentum or is sort of like the, the new people coming in and uh at least we see that in in our school where there's uh there's uh, the, the, the ecology side of things is really growing and there's, there's, there's a realization of how important it is within also in terms of teaching and, 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 and everything like that. So yeah, um, I, I couldn't be happier. Yeah, no, it's also brilliant because there's lots of nice things, um, you know, fa fairly close as well. So you, yeah, you, you've got the Cornwall, the Brecon Beacons, the Cotswold, all sorts of things, but right in the middle of Bristol. So at the weekend, I was walking along the River Frome and, you know, this is right in the middle of Bristol from, you know, it starts at Ikea and goes out to French Hay. And not only do we see kingfishers on the river, but there's a pair of dippers on there. And that, you know, to be in the middle of Bristol is pretty special, actually. So these little aquatic birds foraging in the stream, to me, they're a bird of, you know, wild places. So uh, there's mm. all sorts of kind of good stuff happening right in the middle of Bristol. So. Yeah, and I, I, there's there's also some nice little uh, small scale urban restoration projects as well. Yeah. Uh, just along the Froome, there's not too far from where we are now in Totterdown, There's there's a plan to sort of try and restore uh, a stretch of that. And, uh, and yeah, so there's there's opportunities as as ecologists to actually get involved right on your doorstep uh, and and do something like that, which I think is extremely exciting. Um, mm -hmm. I know I heard about someone who is. Uh, 
who bought up some land in Bristol and is planting a tiny forest, in, which involves essentially a, a, the size of a tennis tennis court. Uh, and they're just planting incredibly densely with all these different types of species and just then letting it do its thing. Uh, and uh, it's, yeah, it's, uh, it's exciting to have that right on your doorstep. Yeah, yeah, and some very um, active friends groups as well. So, um, you know, looking after kind of local parks and nature reserves. And actually when all that comes together, you end up with that kind of, you know, social responsibility for the environment. That means it works for, for, for everyone. And it's not all perfect all the time. I was, um, you know, people drop litter and you know, one of my favorite places you often, you know, there's nearly always a discarded shopping trolley there somewhere, you know, so, um, but collectively it just works and people, you know, look after these places. And, and actually, again, there's lovely evidence that, you know, if you volunteer and actually do something in the environment, it's, it's not only good for the environment, but it's really good for you actually, in terms of, you know, you're, you've got that social contact, you've got that physical work. And, um, and again, it's, it's, it's one of those lovely win-win things. Oh yeah, I, 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 having had the opportunity to plant some trees over the, over the winter as part of our little experiment that we're doing with, uh, with, with the local group here in Bristol, that's been, yeah, lifesaver. It's been brilliant. <laughs> it's, uh, yeah, yeah. 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 A packet of seeds is like a symbol of hope. It's just wonderful. It's, uh, you know, yeah. almost anything could happen. So, um, yeah. So what do you reckon the kind of take home messages are about kind of ecosystem services and, and things like that? So um... you summarized one of them really well before, which is that they, they can they can, if done right, have these really win win scenarios for for nature, uh, for, for also for climate uh, in terms of we're thinking about climate based solutions uh, and, and also for people. Uh, and it's sort of so yeah. the, it is it is exciting and it is it is a way for us as scientists to be able to really showcase the value of why it is important that we look after uh, nature and we and we and we do the kind of work that we do um, so i think that that's the that's where i that's where i get excited yeah no that sweet spot where it works for multiple people is actually really i think it's much more likely to lead to change because you've got more people out there kind of backing it and also it comes back to this idea of you know interdisciplinary research you often do need people looking at a problem from different angles so to prove actually you know the social scientists can prove well, they can prove all sorts of things but you know they, they you can measure happiness and well-being in ways that you know i can measure bumblebees and beetles and and, and plants and things and i measure the amount of nectar in flowers all sorts of you know weird and wonderful things but to to measure well-being is actually you need the social scientists to measure kind of floodwater runoff you need the engineers and the, the geographers and things and by you know if all of us kind of find that spot where every single kind of you know interest group and user and discipline is you know this the, the, those those win-win and sometimes even win-win-win situations where a whole bunch of things mm. come together and um i think now is the moment to be really kind of seizing on that you know for kind of policy makers and there are some tremendous opportunities the i think the public is behind the environment in a way that it might not have been a couple of years ago because of that whole appreciation um due, due to covid and the importance of green space um and yeah, it might be, you know, the next kind of five years or so, it, it, you know, some tremendous change coming through the system. And uh, and yeah, it'd be interesting to see 10 years ahead what has actually happened as a, you know, look into the, yeah. the, the crystal ball. Um, you know, hopefully the country is more forested. Um, hopefully there's all sorts of positive things with, you know, we've been watching cities flood for the last kind of 10 years in a way they just didn't when I was a kid. You know, that, that change mm. in climate and rainfall and the change in use of uplands and so on. And there are some solutions out there. Nature-based solutions are really quite exciting. And it might be that some of those are starting to, you know, really happen in, um, in, in five to 10 years. Um, 
So, so no. So I, I think, <clears throat> I don't know, I'm a cup half full sort of person. I, I kind of, I, I think there's some, right now is a period of tremendous possibility. Um, and we really need to kind of, you know, uh, yeah, make things happen, basically. And uh, also, I mean, another type of interdisciplinary work is that link between universities and other groups outside of universities. I mean, I guess so far we've been talking mostly about within universities, but on the Urban Pollinators Project, we worked with, as well as a bunch of academics, we were working with the conservation practitioners in the cities as well. Um, and then a team of taxonomists to identify the insects. And by working with people that really, you know, the people that buy and run and manage nature reserves, you know, as, as an academic, I can design experiments to test whether things work. But by working with those, those groups outside of universities, I think those are probably, you know, and, and uh, some of the most um, powerful kind of interdisciplinary relationships of all, actually. I think it increases your, your, the reach of your work tremendously as well. So I think that you, the, um, I was also thinking about collaborations even beyond that, you collaborations with uh, artists or collaborations with, uh, yeah. with people really, really outside of your, of your sort of typical uh, sort of uh, comfort zone or whatever you want to call it, uh, that can really uh, help you translate some of the work you're doing and bring it to a broader public in a way that we just don't have the skills to do. Um, so I, I'm really excited about that kind of stuff as well. Yeah, no, art really is. Um, yeah, no, that that's a very, very good point, actually. So I don't think there's sometimes this idea that yeah, arts and sciences are kind of different, but actually put them together. And um, yeah, yeah, there's a nice bit of evidence that kind of um, people that have won Nobel Prizes for their science tend to be also do kind of an art or a craft as well. There's a really good kind of evidence out there that scientists that do kind of you know, art-based activities. It's good for your thinking, actually. I think it just gives you that. Um, but actually just, yeah. Definitely. Yeah, yeah, no. Yeah. But no, yeah, it's just really kind of art, science type things. And um, that that would be, yeah, putting through wilding into that sort of a context would be really fun, actually. So, um, yes, right. I'm just doing a quick look. Is there anything else that, um, I'm trying to think of anything else we can, um, um, what do you think we need to do in, in terms of getting, have you ever been involved in citizens parliament type things, people's parliaments? I have not, no. No, well, okay, not, so, well uh, no. yeah, no, you? yes, I have, and actually they're really interesting. So, so what happens is in society, you tend to hang out, hang out with people like you. That's kind of, it's a well-known social mm. science phenomenon. You know, you tend to, people, flock together, people of their type. So people, you know, ecologists like you and I hang out with kind of, you know, green, alternative, sustainable sorts of, you know, and, and that just happens to the society over. But if you want a, a truly democratic process, you need people from all sorts of walks of life working together to solve a common problem. So I've probably only two, two, two or three times been involved in a completely random selection of people um, doing something together. First one was actually rather embarrassingly a, um, a speed awareness course where you get this completely random sector of society <laughs> all put into a room together to be, you know, you know, low level speeding offences. And actually that's really quite interesting because you get to meet a whole bunch of people you wouldn't normally get to meet. Um, but I was involved mm -hmm. in a, um, it was a, it was a Maury poll type thing where they'd randomly chosen people to ask about how they would like to see the, the, the countryside used and things like that. And actually when you get, there's, there's a lot of evidence that those sorts of groupings of people are, can work together really, really well. And actually I, I'm a huge fan of them now, actually, you know, you need, you need to get society as a whole and just the idea of trying to get people to you know, understand ecosystem services. And actually in some ways it almost needs rebranding. It's a real mouthful ecosystem service. We need a, 
a catchier title to it, actually. It's very easy otherwise to get stuck in your bubble, you know, to have your this idea of how things should be as a scientist. And until you're confronted with the reality, maybe the reality of actually doing what you think is a good idea, or with the reality of the fact that a lot of the section of society might actually disagree with you. Um, and then having to confront that and think about how you can find a, a, a compromise that works for everyone. It's, uh, yeah. yeah, it's probably not something that's good. It's good to be put out of your comfort zone. Yeah, it's also say I was really the one I was involved with. I was really interested to see the decision it made, and it it did it in a more you know a, a more circuitous way. But it 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 actually I was tremendously impressed with the decisions that body of people made. Actually, mm. um, and everyone has a chance to have their say, and you don't all end up agreeing at the end of the day. But you do end up making decisions that are actually I would say both representative and actually eminently sensible in the case the one I was involved with. So, um, but yeah, it does need to. I yeah, maybe I don't know. Yeah, getting into schools and things like that as well is a good way of, um, if you can catch, catch kids, kids give you a, you know, it's a way out to a whole range of different, you know, types of, of people and societies. And it's, uh, yeah, and, and education should be, you know, where, where, yeah, all sorts of exciting things happen. So, yeah, start the money. Yeah, yeah. So Tommaso, if, if you were to summarize in a nutshell, what would be your kind of take home message to policymakers? What, what one thing should they really, Think about hard right now in terms of ecosystem services and and the environment. What what would what would be your your top tip be? I think that at the moment there's this really exciting opportunity and there's almost this wave that we're riding, thinking about uh, wanting to reforest large swaths of Britain uh, and planting trees, and that's uh, both as a solution to the biodiversity crisis, but also to the climate uh, emergency. And I think that's extremely exciting, uh, and it's a great time to be a forest ecologist. But I think. My only uh, point that I would make there is that we need to be careful about exactly what trees we plant and where, uh, and to understand that trees don't necessarily need to be planted everywhere. There's places where they probably shouldn't be planted. And equally, there's probably some species of trees that uh, are better suited to certain types of environments. So trying to understand those nuances and keeping that ecological nuance that we know so much about uh, it would be my, my take home message. Let's not lose that. Yeah, yeah, no, that's a good one. Yeah, yeah. Um, and Jane, if I were to ask you the, the same thing, what is your biggest sort of uh, top tip to policymakers? Um, I think mine would be to actually look for win-win situations, even better, win-win-win. So where you've got two problems and you can solve them both with a single solution. So an example might be um, in terms of, you know, green spaces in cities. If you can make them really good for pollinators and people at the same time and those two kind of you know user groups both like the same thing they're like you know large numbers of flowers around and you know and so there's a chance to kind of get two two solutions for the price of one and there's many cases i think like that where you can actually kind of get different um you can solve different problems at the same time and that is just you know we need to have lots of change for the good at the moment and if you can kind of take out two problems at once that's that's a really good way of thinking um, so I think that would be mine, would be to look for that sweet spot where you can solve more than one problem at once. You can find out more about the Cabot Institute for the Environment at bristol.ac.uk forward slash Cabot.